0: Thank you very much, Beatrice. Um, I'm going to pray for us as we uh, continue our journey through 1 Timothy, looking at this passage for a second time uh, together this morning. Uh, So let's pray. Father God, we do thank you that you speak to us. You speak that we may know you and know ourselves and know how to live in light of that. We thank you that your word is a forever word, as we have heard in our first song It speaks uh, your truth that is unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo through to eternity. So give us humble hearts, we pray, hearts that know that you are speaking to us, hearts that are willing to listen, hearts that are willing to trust you. We pray that you will help us uh, to line up our church with your good purposes for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, I found my copy. Um, this is uh, an outline of where we're going to be heading as we look at this passage for a second time. The first uh, couple of pages will, will give you an outline of uh, where we're heading. And uh, here's, here's the way we're going to approach it. We're actually going to um, do two, uh, two sermons, uh, but panic not. They're two shorter sermons. Um, so we're going to uh, firstly look at really what we covered last week and uh, also the verse that we didn't get to last week verse 15 Uh, and then in the second uh, part we're going to uh, zoom in on implications how to apply the principles that we see here uh, for us at St Andrews Um, we are in a part of 1 Timothy if you were here last week uh, that is all about this gathering all about gatherings like this moment that we're in right now and how God wants us to uh, live and act together as a church. Uh, chapter three, verse fifteen says uh, he's writing to Timothy. He's hoping to get to see Timothy in person. If that's delayed for some reason, here is how to live as the church. And particularly the part in front of us that Beatrice just read for us in one uh, Timothy two eleven to fifteen is the word of God establishing for us principles about the roles of men and women in the church. That aspect of our life together. Uh, And especially the roles of men and women when it comes to learning and teaching the gospel together. Now, last week, if you were here, we did most of the heavy lifting in terms of trying to understand the passage together and to see the principles that are in the verses in front of us. Uh, And I do commend that uh, uh, sermon to you last week, not because it was especially good, but because this week will make less sense uh, without it. So if you didn't get a chance, uh, you can find that on our YouTube channel. Now, in a moment, I do want to uh, briefly summarise what we did cover last week and then get to the implications and application together. But first, as I've been thinking about this again this week, uh, I do want to address the question of how we as a church and individually as Christians arrive at principles we have when it comes to how we live personally, when it comes to how we live as a church. And I guess what I want to address is to ask you this question, by what authority do you live the way you live? By What guides the decisions you make and the priorities you have and the principles that you live by? Uh, some principles that we live by are pretty straightforward. Everybody has the same. Uh, some of them are more uncertain and uh, complex. And I want to ask, with the ones that feel uncertain, how do you work out how to live? Uh, who gets the final say on those issues? I remember years ago reading a really helpful article, or I found it helpful, in a Christian magazine. And the article was simply titled this, Four Ways to Live. And it spoke about different authorities that can uh, guide the way we think and the decisions that we make. And it made the point that most issues facing Christians come down to that question of, by what authority do you make your decisions? Uh, Each of us makes choices that in the end are guided by authorities, by things that we look to to help us. Uh, come up with the answers that we come up with 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 regard to how to live and most Christians I suspect uh, anybody who would say they're a Christian here this morning would say that the Bible is one of those authorities for me it is one of the ways that 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 my life is guided and the decisions I make is guided but here's the reality Uh, we live in a world where there's other authorities that compete with that authority to be the guide for how we live um Four that that article highlighted was firstly the Bible itself, God's Word, that's an authority that guides us. And then there are three human authorities there's uh, human traditions, uh, there's human experience, and there's also human rationality. They're, they're also authorities that, that guide the way we think and decide. Uh, there are those who would say of themselves, as they seek to understand life and how to live, uh, that In terms of the Bible, it is the authority for them. Uh, The the Anglican articles of religion uh, declare that very thing. They say that in matters of life and faith, this is our authority, this is what guides us. So that's one approach. Another approach, others would regard human tradition as what ultimately guides them, be that religious traditions, if they've grown up in a religious background, Or maybe it's even just family traditions. This is the way we think as a family. This is what's been handed on to me from from my predecessors. And that becomes the ultimate authority. That's how I live. Uh, For others, there's human experience. Uh, And that, again, could be different sorts of experience. It could be just things you've experienced in life. And that becomes what decides the way you think. Or even just your own experience of God. This is what I think God wants me to do in this issue. And that's based on, in the end, probably a gut reaction. Uh, And then the final authority is the authority of human reason, which in many ways dominates uh, the Western world as the ultimate guide. That is that if that is your ultimate authority, you'll accept whatever in your mind makes sense to current cultural sensibilities. If it lines up with that, then, then I'll accept it. Now, the reality is, I think every single person here, myself included, is a mix of those authorities when it comes to how we decide and think things through. For instance, it's not possible to read the Bible uh, without using my reason to help me to interpret it. That happens naturally. Uh, It's not possible to apply the Bible in my own life without uh, bringing my experience to bear on that, as I think through the application. But there does come a point where we have to choose who or what gets the final say. Uh, what do we do in those moments when, when our experience doesn't tally with what the Bible says? Who, what, what's the final arbiter there? Or what do we do if the Bible seems uh, uh, unreasonable to 21st century sensibilities? Uh, again, what, what do we decide in, in that moment? I want to suggest to you that such moments reveal... What or who gets the final say in our lives? Or will it be my instincts, my experience? Will, will it be the tradition that I've grown up in, uh, given my background? Will, will it be the cultural sensibilities around us, that dictate it? Uh, with all of that in mind, here's the claim the Bible makes of itself. Uh, firstly, I'll, I'll read the Bible's own claim, but firstly, here's, here's how it's described by uh, American pastor Kevin de Jung, who says this, Whether we realise it or not, we all give someone or something the last word. Our parents, our culture, our community, our feelings, the government, opinion polls, impressions. We all have someone or something that we turn to as the final arbiter of truth claims. For Christians, this authority is the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. Of course, we can misunderstand and misapply the word of God, but when interpreted correctly... Paying careful attention to the original context, considering the lit- literary genre that we're reading, thinking through the intent of the author, the Bible is never wrong in what it affirms and must never be marginalised as anything less than the last word on everything that it teaches. And I listen to the Bible uh, express that itself in 2 Timothy 3.16. So the second letter that Paul wrote to Timothy after the one we're in, he said this, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, the claim of the Bible is, here is all you need to know the good that God would have you do in any circumstance. Both the Old and the New Testament are Scripture. They self-reference themselves as Scripture. For instance, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3 uh, the Apostle Peter speaks of the Apostle Paul and says he is speaking God's word to us. Uh, the same is said, it's true of uh, Jesus who will speak of the creation accounts in Genesis and says God said this to us. All scripture, not some, all scripture is God breathed and useful for uh, leading us when it comes to life decisions. It is, and we don't have time to look at all of these verses, it is a word spoken by our God who Hebrews 6.18 tells us he doesn't lie when he speaks. It's a word, Psalm 119, verse 42 says, you can trust it. It's trustworthy and true. It's a a word, uh, Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, that is, how good is this? A faithful refuge for the uncertain. You ever uncertain? Here is a faithful place to go for the answers. And 1 Peter 1, 25 says, it is a word that will last forever. And so as we consider who or what gets the last say in our lives know that the Bible is actually sufficient for making God's mind known to us, for telling us all that we need to know to live in godly obedience to him, in all ages, in all cultures, until the Lord returns. And it's not just sufficient for those things, it's, it's actually authoritative when it comes to those things. Uh, listen to this quote by the reformer Martin Luther. He said of the Bible's authority, he said, We are to deal with scripture in such a way that we bear in mind that God himself has written, has says what is written. And so last week, our, our goal was actually really simple, if you remember it. When thinking about the roles of men and women in church and thinking through what to do when it comes to that, we simply ask this question, what does God say? And here's what we heard in 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 14. Here's a, here's a couple of minutes summary of uh, what took us ages uh, last week. Here's the first principle we saw in verse 11 of chapter 2. When it comes to the role of women in the church, and this is true of men as we saw last week, but particularly it's spoken about women here, they are to be learners. In God's house, they are to commit themselves to investing head and heart in learning the gospel. To learn it where we're told in quietness. And we saw last week that has nothing to do with silence. It has to do with being undistracted, undisturbed. Prioritising learning the gospel so that you can be equipped to serve God in the ways he calls you to. And secondly, learning in full submission. Hearing God's word taught by uh, the one in authority, the overseer appointed, as we'll see in 1 Timothy 3, humbly and with a view to a goal of obeying the words you hear. That's the first principle we saw. And then the second one in verse 12, uh, the one we're thinking through the application of today in God's house, verse 12, women are not to teach with authority over a man. So in a context like we're in right now. Why? That's what we wrestled with last week. It's not to do with competency. Uh, It's not a particular issue in Ephesus Uh, The two reasons he gives are in verse 13 and 14. You remember them? Because of the order that God has given creation, because he has ordered creation in a certain way, deliberately, purposefully. And the flip side of that, because of the disorder of the fall and the damage that that does. Uh, Again, it is sometimes argued that we can't use the creation accounts in Genesis as as the reason for this sort of principle because, well, who knows what to make of the creation accounts. If you want an authority on the creation accounts, look no further than the Lord Jesus who treated them as God's word. And so that's uh, what we use here as the basis for this principle. Creation, we saw last week, reflects God's ordered purpose, that while men and women are fundamentally equal in every way, they have different roles at points in his creation. And the role of leadership in the family and in God's church family, that's given to the man. And given uh, he is given the leadership, but verse 14, this is what we saw when we looked at Genesis 3 last week, he's held responsible for the fall, given that, that he had the role of leadership. Instead of, uh, Genesis 3 shows us, instead of the man owning his job of leading and serving Eve, including... Speaking the word of God with authority over the word of the serpent at that moment, he's silent. And Genesis 3 verses 9 to 12, Adam is held responsible for that chain of events. As you read through Genesis 3, as Beatrice did for us just before, we see that both the man and the woman are held guilty and accountable by God. And everything as a result of that sin gets disordered. Uh, work is disordered and hard and frustrating, as I'm sure you know. Childbirth is hard and frustrating. And the roles of men and women, and even the relationships of men and women, are, are distorted. But in the midst of that uh, fall and the judgment that comes from God, if you were listening carefully, right at the end of Genesis 3, the passage we read, verse 15, a promise is made. Literally a seed of hope is sown by God in the midst of this rubble of of the fall. And this is where we come to the verse that we didn't get to last week. You see there 1 Timothy 2.15, if you've got it in front of you? Uh, That's where we're going to zoom in right now. But first, did did you hear the promise that was in Genesis 3? You need to have that in mind as we look at this verse. There it was, a series of judgments and curses that God brought upon creation... And if you listen closely, as God judges the serpent, Satan, this is what he said. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat the dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel there's the promise hold that promise in your mind and listen again to 1 timothy 2 after paul has referred to creation after he has referred to the tragedy of the fall what does he say next in verse 15 a more uh, literal translation is this but woman singular woman the woman that is eve will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith love holiness and propriety now what is that about uh, there are two ways that it has been understood over uh, the centuries. Neither of them change the principles that we've seen before, but I think one of them, uh, one of them to me, is the obvious uh, understanding of this passage. I'll give you the other one first, and there's lots of merit in this too. Um, some argue that what Paul is doing here is he's simply referring to a distinctive and demonstrably female-only activity in his creation, that is, bearing children. In the same way that there is a a male-only activity that is referred to in verse 12, here in verse 15 is a female-only activity and it's not for the male or the female to look at that activity and say, I want that job. It doesn't work that way. Instead, uh, if physically able, and the fall has meant that that is not always the case, uh, it is for women a demonstration of godly living. Not the only demonstration but it is a clear one of not rejecting God's purpose but living it out. Honouring God through motherhood which is not to be belittled as it often is in our culture. So there's one possible explanation of the verse. Here's another one and this is where I think the weight of this passage has been pushing. I think this second one is in more in keeping with the profound theological realities and foundations that Paul has laid up to this point. Uh, here's, a, as, as I said, a more literal translation of verse 15. She, singular, speaking of Eve, the one who is described as a sinner in verse 14, she will be saved by the birth of the child. Hear that and remember the promise in the midst of the rubble of the fall. Speaking of her seed, it said the serpent will strike his heel, but what will her seed do? He will crush the serpent's head. Now, here is the gospel foretold right there in the rubble of the fall. In the rubble of creation's disordering, we're told this. The serpent Satan will seek, and he still does this, to strike at Eve and all her seed, after all all the children who come after her, people like us, he will strike at the child's heel. But this child will crush the serpent underfoot. Eve's salvation we're told and and actually by the end of verse 15 their salvation it's blown out to not just hers it includes Adam's as well will come through her child and throughout the Old Testament I think the big question that hangs in the air from Genesis 3 onwards is who is the seed who will rescue Uh, Cain and Abel come along they're clearly not the seed uh, you follow the family line along and you get to Abraham and here's where it gets really big it's suddenly it's not one family will be saved by this promise but all families all nations this whole world and the same longing we saw from our God in 1 Timothy 2 5 that he wills that the whole world be saved here you see that starting to happen through this seed and eventually it does find its fulfillment in the child our savior Christ Jesus our hope If you read a book like Galatians, we're told in Galatians 4 verse 4, he was born of a woman, born under the law, born a child of the fall, into a world like ours. And yet we're told that he alone is able to reverse the curse by taking the curse himself on the tree. Now you get to the very end of the scriptures in Revelation 12. We get this picture again. That promise that was in Genesis 3 is retold, but it's fulfilled there. We're told in Revelation 12 verses 9 and 10, this child will once and for all hurl down Satan, the snake he's called in the chapter, and then comes salvation forever. I see what Paul is doing here. It's what he's been doing all the way through 1 Timothy. We've seen his big agenda is salvation so I cannot overstate the deep tectonic theological plates of God's purposes that undergird the principles that we're seeing together in these verses. It's all there, creation, for, salvation, hope, Jesus, fulfilment. I am struck that when the Bible teaches on principles like this, it has the gospel stamped all over it to say it's not arbitrary, And so God says to his church, and this is what we concluded with last week, now that you have received grace and mercy and peace from Christ Jesus, now that you have come back into God the Father's house and under the leadership of King Jesus, honour the good purposes that he gave us. Okay, so what does that mean for us here at St Andrews? What does that look like on the ground? Well, that's where we're going in part two. Uh, But first we're going to um, hear our second song. Uh, As the band comes up, I I, I want to encourage you to use this song again as a a, a time of reflection to think about what we've uh, covered so far. I love this song because what this song reminds us of is that the life we live as men and women is a life that was rescued and now belongs to God. And so we want to line up our purposes uh, with him. So as the band comes up, let's hear this life I live. I'm we think about the application of this here at St Andrews. Um, Firstly, some general reflections, and then what it looks like in practice, and then we'll finish with some implications uh, that I see from this principle for both men and women. Um, Firstly, general reflections. And these are just things that have struck me as I've been reading and thinking about this in recent weeks. Uh, Here's the first of them. And it comes from a a very personal place in one sense. This is an issue that I've wrestled with over many years. I remember uh, very deliberately making the decision to think it through during the four years of Bible college without going in with a set view, and that was important to me for two reasons, for almost competing reasons in one sense. I'd grown up in a church that had a view very much as I've articulated uh, to you uh, today, and in my own family there was very different views on it. Uh, gentle gracious different views but they were different views my mother has a different view to that Uh, she also has served in ministry in Anglican churches in Sydney and so I think the Lord in his kindness uh, stopped me jumping quickly to conclusions on this and said what does it look like uh, to think that through knowing that you love and respect someone who has a different view who has their Bible open as they're coming to that view and also not simply just going with a party line to ask that question that we've been trying to ask, what does God actually say? And so with that in mind, wherever you are at uh, on this issue, perhaps you're settled and you've been settled for some time, perhaps you're, uh, and this I hope isn't the case, but it could be the case, you just uh, shut your ears as this is being said, I've got my view and I don't want to think about it. (laughs) Wherever you're at, let me encourage you to do this, ask questions. Ask questions, lots of them, work hard at understanding it. This is God speaking to us here. But, and this is crucial, do it with a desire to honour what God is saying. There is actually a very big difference between asking a question in faith and asking it in rebellion. Uh, You can either ask a question to try and understand something that you're wrestling with, or you can ask a question to try and find a way around what is obviously there in front of us. And I want to encourage you, don't ask those sort of questions. Don't ask the loophole questions. Um, I was struck by this quote during the week uh, from uh, a minister called David Platt. Speaking of that moment in Genesis 3, he said, Sin began when God's commands to us were reduced to a question. At that moment, the most deadly spiritual force was uh, covertly smuggled into the world. That force, the assumption that God's word is subject to my judgment. Uh, Don't ask questions over the top of his word. Ask them under it, if that makes sense. Here's the second general reflection. Uh, Don't make your principle uh, out of one-off outliers on this issue. There's all sorts of examples uh, within scripture and also within uh, church life and the missionary world of uh, uh, women capably uh, teaching with authority. I'll give you an example from the Old Testament, Deborah, the Judge Deborah. Uh, now, my suggestion to you is, if if you want to look closely at the judge Deborah, read her in context and see that she is in that role, effectively in that role, and yet she is doing it in judgment because men have failed to do it. Uh, I'll give you another example cited from the scriptures: uh, the very first people to testify that Christ has risen. Who are they? They are the women, the women at the tomb. It's Mary. Uh, uh, and again, that's cited sometimes as, well, we've got to disregard the principle because you can see there at the resurrection who uh, teaches with authority, who declares the truth. Um, again, let me suggest that in context there is something of that same rebuke going on as Peter and John come to the tomb, see it empty and go away and say nothing. Uh, now, whatever you, your view is on the likes of Deborah or uh, the women at the tomb, uh, empty tomb on Easter Day... Or other outliers, for instance, a a single female missionary uh, on the mission field, teaching with authority. Let me suggest to you, don't make the outlier your principle. Uh, What does God say? Uh, Here's a third general reflection, and this is hard. Don't let your emotional response to verses like this or, and this is crucial... A bad experience of ungodly or incompetent male leadership be the final authority as you think it through. Here's a fourth reflection, Uh, and this has struck me uh, profoundly in my time in the UK. Don't think that verses like these are why our world is not listening to the church. That's sometimes suggested. This is so contentious and so out of uh, kilter with our world and its thinking that if we are to speak of these things, it will only... Uh, alienate the world more i think really helpfully i heard uh, this of uh, 1 timothy 2 uh, recently the most controversial controversial verse in this chapter is not verse 12 it's verse 5 that there is in this world only one mediator only one way to be right with god and it is the lord jesus and if you are outside of relationship with him you are not right with god and you are under his judgment there's there's the stench of death in our world not verse 12 And uh, I do suggest from uh, my own uh, experience in the UK, when churches try to line up their principles with the world, not so much on this one but other ones, it doesn't result in revival, it results in rapid decline. I don't think this verse is why the world is not listening. Uh, A couple more general reflections. Uh, Realise that God's commands for our homes that is uh, men servant-hearted leadership that's what he calls for again and again in the scriptures is consistent with his command for his home his church and that shouldn't surprise us let's be consistent in those uh, another reflection and this is crucial and i'll say more about this when with implications to men you in, in a few minutes let us humbly and seriously repent of abuses of this call that have been made by males in leadership. When ungodly men have led the church or led in their homes in a way that is not the way that God is calling them to here, it causes profound damage. Uh, let us repent of that. A final uh, uh, general reflection. Let's aim, and uh, I said this last week, let's aim not for rules but for heart change on this. Asking that question. Am I honouring the principle Be willing to keep asking that. Uh, Be willing to realise that we'll get it wrong along the way and we will need to change along the way. Be teachable. Okay, with that in mind, here's uh, very specifically how 1 Timothy 2 verse 12 applies here at St Andrews. And I'll start with this question. Where does the restriction that you see there in verse 12 that only men, and, and it's only some men, as we'll see in 1 Timothy 3, teach with authority in the church? How does that express itself, this principle? Uh, well the way it expresses itself here at St Andrews is in this moment now the sermon teaching with authority as we saw last week calling upon the congregation to repent and believe Uh, from time to time that same dynamic will occur in other circumstances when we have church family prayer generally I will be the one who teaches the short uh, message at that point but this primarily is where it expresses itself Uh, I'll give you one other example that I've wrestled with in recent years, and you may want to take me up on this. The other example, that that, the way it expresses itself here at St Andrews, at least in my practice, has been service-leading in the Sunday gathering like this. And the reason for that is, I think, more to do with my way of leading rather than it be true of everybody I think both men and women can take on that role but I find myself as an Anglican minister one of the things that I'm meant to do is to call upon repentance especially in the prayers of confession and then assure people of forgiveness Uh, that is teaching with authority in my mind that word of assurance that the Anglican minister is called to give. Now I'm still thinking that through and I've got to tell you this last year of COVID and doing everything online has thrown all that thinking up in the air. So I'm still trying to work it out. My goal though, and I might be wrong on it, is to seek to honor the principle. Uh, That won't always be popular or right, uh, but that's the goal. Uh, Now, how does it show itself? That's it. The mixed gathering of the church where, is where the limitation of 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, shows itself. Who can teach with authority here at St. Andrews if we're listening to this word? Uh, well, God's word has the final say, and His answer is those who, well, as we'll see in 1 Timothy 3, who are appointed as overseers and those who are being trained to be appointed as overseers. Uh, and it is why I do the majority of the sermons here, uh, for better or worse, it's how I lead. I lead with authority here uh, now the the bigger question how does if that's how the limitation shows itself how does the complementary partnership of men and women serving together in ministry show itself in St Andrews the short answer is everywhere else that's our goal at least Uh, When it comes to Sundays, when you see who prays in church, when you see who reads the Bible in church, who serves in music teams, uh, in welcoming, in pastoral care, you name it, it, it's a partnership, a complementary partnership of men and women serving together. And I want to say that very deliberately as we do those things as a church, I prioritise women in that role. There are more women who read and pray Than men. Now, there's downsides to that, of course, but it is a deliberate attempt to have this partnership show itself. And let me encourage you don't just look at the rosters to see the partnership at play. Look to see women ministering the word informally before and after church during the week. That's the engine room of our church. Here's another place that partnership expresses itself it it does in our small groups. Uh, Most of our small groups are mixed groups, as in men and women meeting together. And they have mixed leadership teams of men and women. Uh, Small groups, uh, at least in the way we're applying uh, 1 Timothy 2, I see small groups as having a very distinctive and different function to what's happening in the sermon. Uh, They are, in my view, a ministry of prophecy uh, that 1 Corinthians 11 and 14 speaks of. Now, when you hear that word prophecy, don't think of uh, predictions of the future, not that sort of prophecy. But the prophecy that 1 Corinthians 14 speaks of, which is, The job that both men and women are called to do, which is to bring God's word to bear on each other, to strengthen one another, to comfort one another, to encourage one another, men and women are to do that. They're to eagerly desire that gift, Paul says. And so that's what we do in our groups. And it's very uh, important that one of the other things that we do in our groups is that we hear the word together on Sunday and then we hope that word follows us into the week. The same things we've thought about on Sunday as it's been taught with authority are then explored in our groups and so small group leaders are appointed to lead that process of mutual encouragement through that ministry of prophecy. And given that, well, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 5 says both men and women should prophesy, it makes sense that they lead the group together. And even more than that, it's hugely important to the rest of the group to see that partnership, that complementary partnership modelled by the way the, group, the leaders lead together. A couple of other places where it shows itself this partnership, ministry teams here at St Andrews. They are led, almost all of them, if not all of them, by mixed teams of men and women. And some of our key ministries have been led by women as the the main leader of that ministry. Now, I would want to make the comment uh, to men at this point that sometimes these teams have been dominated by women because men have been unwilling to step up and lead alongside them. (laughs) Men have not prioritised leadership roles within the church alongside other roles that they have, for instance, in the workplace. When that is so, the complementary partnership we should be expressing suffers. Uh, As a sidebar, when it comes to ministry teams, this is one of the questions that comes up from time to time. What about youth ministry and the talks that are given in in the youth group? At at what point does a a boy become a man and this principle come into play? I mean, how do you work that out? Uh, Whatever point you choose, it's going to be arbitrary in the end. Uh, let me tell you the way we approach it. How do we honor the principle? Our goal is that the the, the clear marker of that transition in our culture is the marker from moving from school to finished school. Uh, up to that point, I want to suggest that both in our children's ministries and in our youth ministries, the primary teacher of the children is not the youth leader or the children's leader, it's the parent who teaches them with authority after they finish finished school, that's when they come under the authority, if you like, of the wider church. Uh, one final example of this partnership, uh, you see it in administration roles in our church, and I'm not just talking about secretarial roles, but that's true, but also wardens, uh, parish council, elected officers in our church. In my time here, there has always been at least one of the wardens who is a woman, Uh, parish council is often made up of uh, a fairly even distribution of men and women and that's because they're not called to lead by teaching with authority their leadership is the leadership of administration administering our finances and our premises so that those who are overseers are freed up to do that work let me finish with this just uh, and I'll have to be rapid with this some implications for women and for men specifically Uh, firstly for women I want to encourage you at St Andrews to look for ways to serve with teaching gifts, if you have them. And I look out and I see many women who have those gifts. It is a mission priority we have as a church, and we'll speak more about that next week. Make it your goal, whether formally or informally, to find ways, and in your homes, to teach the gospel. Uh, Here's another one. Regarding teaching and which roles are teaching with authority, realise consciences will differ. Uh, You know, there are some women in our church who, uh, as they look at a principle like 1 Timothy 2.12, in their conscience they don't want to lead a small group because they're they're concerned that it is against that principle. I want to say we should honour them if that's what their conscience says. I also want to say for women who don't feel that way, fantastic. We need healthy men and women uh, leadership teams. But consciences differ, and the Bible tells us in Romans 14, 23, don't sin against your conscience. A couple more implications for women. Help each other by raising awareness of teaching opportunities here or elsewhere. Uh, You'd be surprised how many women in our church are involved in teaching the gospel in different forums at St Andrews and beyond. We should hear more about them, and that's partly on me, but it also partly on one another, sharing those opportunities. Here's another implication for women. If teaching is not a gift you have, and I think all of us are called to teach in some contexts, but perhaps you think upfront teaching or that sort of role, that's not me, use other gifts to serve in this complementary partnership and let us not belittle other gifts. Let us not be a church that if you're not teaching, uh, I'm just this or just that. No, we are a body. The hand can't say to the foot, I have no need of you. A final implication uh, for women Pray for godly male leadership. And if you're not sure what to pray, turn the page to 1 Timothy 3 verses 1 to 7 and there it is. I'm going to finish with this. Implications for men. Here's the big one and perhaps the most important one. Don't be Adam. Don't be in the church, negligent, lazy, silent passengers. Lead. Look for ways to lead in teaching in your homes and in this church. Step up and lead in those places. You know, I'm short about half a dozen to a dozen small group male small group leaders. We need men to step up into those roles. Uh, I'm short of people for seniors ministry, men involved in that, everyday English, you name it. It shouldn't be that the women of our church carry us. And so, men, I want to encourage you to feel the weight of the call that God puts on us in his house. And not all upfront teaching roles, but we need men to lead across the range of ministries of our church, formally and informally. Two final implications for men, and this one I think is perhaps the one that struck me most this week. Men, I think it is your job, our job, to call out ungodly male leadership, especially in the home and in this house too. I hear repeated stories of men who knew of abusive leadership in those contexts and did nothing. It's tricky. But being silent is not the answer. Be wise, be careful, but don't be asleep. A final encouragement to men is the same encouragement that women get in 2 Timothy 1, uh, 1 Timothy 2.11, be a learner. Come here to deliberately invest heart and mind in learning the gospel so you can take the opportunities that come. I'm going to pray for us now. I do encourage you to keep talking about this in our small groups. And we have a forum coming up on the 21st of March. There's going to be a survey come out uh, this week. If you want to input into that, it's going to be an anonymous survey. So you don't need to worry about outing yourself. You can ask whatever you want in that. Uh, and we'll get together on the afternoon of March the 21st. But I'm going to pray, and then uh, we're going to finish with Celia leading us in uh, prayer for other matters. So let's pray together. Father God, we praise and thank you that because of Jesus, we are your house, the church of the God who is alive and is king forever. We praise you for the task you have set before us, proclaiming Christ Jesus our hope that people may be saved. Set our hearts to that cause. We pray that you would speak your word into our church, that we as men and women might line up our life together in accord with your purposes for us. We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen.